I love and embrace change. I know that not everyone does. And if I can help people change their mindset, open their perspective to new opportunities, new ways of looking at things, um, I'm all for it. The B2B Marketing Exchange was created with one goal in mind, to help B2B practitioners across marketing and sales be better at their jobs. Now we're bringing the insights from the stage to your ears. These are the tips and tools you need to succeed. This is the B2B Marketing Exchange Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the B2B Marketing Exchange Podcast. I'm Alicia Esposito, Senior Content Strategist for Demand Gen Report, and I'm really excited to have my colleague Brian Anderson with me. Say hi, Brian. Hi, Alicia. We recently had the chance to sit down with Brian Fanzo, who is a great friend of the Demand Gen Report family. He's spoken at a few of our events now, um, but we decided to get it a little more up close and personal with him. And, you know, I don't know about you, Brian, but I learned some really new things about him, and I think a lot of really valuable insights as well. I mean, what, what's your take on what we talked about? The dude's a character. He's right? Like, he's just like, uh, he's the, the nicest guy in the entire world, and exactly how you see him on stage is exactly how he acts one-on-one conversations with you, too. He, he's walking around with a beeper. It's like, <laughs> you know, like millennials that walk around with a beeper? He does. But he's... The smartest dude I've probably talked to in a long time, especially when it comes to like brand authenticity, being there, being in front of the customers, actually getting to know your customers to the point where you can, you know, get them involved in your go to market initiatives, whether it be through influencer marketing, whether it be through customer advocacy and those sort of things. And he's just it's just interesting to hear him like how passionate he gets on these types of topics. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. He has the experience working with so many brands to build up the best practices that he is, you know, sharing on stage and in these one-on-one conversations with marketers and sales professionals. Um, But what I've found to be really fascinating is how rich his history in tech is, which, you know, maybe I was a little ignorant. I didn't know how deep his experience goes. I mean, working for the government, that's no joke. It's crazy how much he's, you know, been around the block. But the thing is, is a lot of this stuff that we're talking about on a day-to-day basis is, you know, it's all unified. It's all the mm-hmm. it's all the same stuff when it comes to, you know, being being consistent, being, you know, uh, creating that sort of genuine relationship with your buyers. And then ultimately, you know, building that relationship to the point where, you know, they're willing to be advocates, willing to be fans. And then, you know, going into um, other topics that he was t- talking about when it came to like the millennial generation, how the millennials are starting to become more prominent in the B2B workforce, um, as well as the the buying center, whether in, in target accounts, that sort of thing. Just being able to get into that mindset of who you're engaging with, who you're talking to, who you're going to market for, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I, and I think that's going to be the key thing that everyone listening to this episode is going to take from this, um, how he was able to take his experiences in the professional world, you know, working in, um, you know, in the government and then going to more of the cybersecurity type role. He was kind of the young guy in the room. So how he became an advocate for his organizations and did a lot of that customer and prospect facing, um, you know, speaking and engagement and how he carried that through to his, um, you know, consultancy work and, and eventually his speaking. And, you know, I think a lot of the insights he shares around, 
focusing on the behavior, not necessarily the generational divide, is a really big takeaway. So um, really excited to have everyone listening today dig a little bit deeper into his experiences, his perspectives, and hopefully it inspires you all to register for BWMX because he's going to give a keynote session. He's going to dive a little bit deeper into that whole millennial mindset, what it means, how to apply empathy and trust to your marketing, and and also um, on your internal engagement initiatives too, because, you know, as Brian A. noted, um, these are the folks that are going to be working within your organization as well. So you need to take a whole new approach to um, to not just engagement, but, you know, your, your marketing and, and your sales initiatives moving forward. So enough of us gabbing. Sit back and meet Brian Fanzo. Brian, uh, first of all, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. Always excited to have a fun little conversation about a little bit of everything and anything. So excited to be here. Yeah, that's what we like to do. We like to cover all of the bases when it comes to the topics that we discuss here. Um, So where are you today? Uh, You travel in the world all the time. Are you home finally or... I'm home. I, got, I took a red eye home from San Francisco last night. Uh, I know we're recording this on Halloween. It's pretty much impossible to get to from San Francisco to Washington D.C. in a in a timely manner. That if I landed, I'd be able to get to my my house in time for Halloween. So I took the dreaded red eye last night. But I am home in my home studio, and as soon as I'm done here, I'll be uh, going trick or treating. So all is good in my world. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been up to recently, the past couple of days. What uh shows you've been at, what you've been doing from a content perspective, what have you been working on? Yeah, this is the this is the hot and heavy season for me. So I've actually I've had at least three speaking gigs the last four weeks. Uh, and two of those weeks, I had four gigs, ranging from financial uh, services events to enterprise technology events, um, to a B2B event, to travel events. And then uh, this this week, I was actually speaking at a at a local kind of association in California, and then I did seven hours of hosting a uh, what they called Global Marketing Day uh, yesterday for uh, one of the software companies that I've done some work with. So uh, you know, wide range of things, you know, and most of it, you know, there's a a lot of the conversations I've been having lately, uh, which is kind of exciting. I think we, we're talking a lot more about what does the world look like in a sense of kind of connecting our dots in this more digitally connected world, but a a world that is also more divided as well as kind of knowing the fact that over the next 12 months or so, especially here in the United States, will be even more uh, divisive with elections and things that are going on. So it's been it's been really fun. I've, the conversations uh, from a marketing perspective seem to be a lot more about trust, authenticity, you know, how do we relate? How do we listen? And for me, that's kind of the, the place that I like to say, I, I like to say the things I like to do least are marketing and sales. I, I like to connect dots, build relationships uh, and grow businesses that way. So it's been a lot of fun. Oh, that's excellent, Brian. And and obviously, as indicated by your schedule recently, you, you live quite the jet set life. Like you said, um, speaking on keynote stages, having these even intimate conversations with business executives, marketers, sales professionals, what have you. It's probably a rewarding life, but a very hectic life as well. Um, so for the folks that may be new to you or, you know, kind of have trouble wrapping their heads around the uh, speaker lifestyle, so to speak, um, why don't we take a step back a little bit and share a little bit about how you kind of got into the space, um, kind of positioned yourself as a thought leader and, you know, what really drives you to, to do what you do every day? Well, that's a great one. I, I like that. And I, and then for me, you know, I, I joke that, you know, 
the speaker life that I have now, if I, if I knew that it was a job or a life that you could have, um, when I was in college, I would have pursued it. It was, it, it would, it was something that would have attracted me, um, back then. I just didn't know of it as something that was, you know, a job, let alone, you know, a career. Uh, and, you know, I think I, I had heard or knew of like what a motivational speaker had been, and I had been to a, you know, events, but for me, it was a kind of different world. And, you know, if I look back over my career, I you know I have a very unique background in the sense that I worked in cybersecurity for the Department of Defense uh, here in Washington D.C. for nine years, and for those nine years, I had a wide range of roles. I, I started as a help desk uh, employee, and in, in six months, I was promoted about four levels above my my entry level job to take over a, a training team. That I grew the training team to 32 employees. We were doing almost four courses a week, every week around the United States. And then I kind of got tapped on the shoulder to, in like the easiest way to say this was, I was the only non-gray-haired person in the cybersecurity team. And they said, Brian, you're the young guy. We want to attract young talent. We want you to be the face of cybersecurity for the U.S. government. And so they actually sent me to communications training. I actually had to pass both a written exam and an exam that you had to go up in front of and present with the goal of presenting at the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon um, every quarter. And I got to do that. I, I passed the exam and uh, I did that for four years. So I, I think a total of 15 or 16 times. And I, I like to say for me, that's why no crowd or no audience has ever intimidated me since, uh, as you have generals and uh, those in full uniform in the front row. And I'm the guy that, you know, walks out with, uh, let's just say, n- not your traditional, uh, you know, suit and tie. And I have my own style. Uh, but it, it was something I loved. I absolutely loved the role I had. And then uh, when I left the government, I, uh, and really the reason I left the government, which is probably the bigger underlying principle here is I had a dream job. I I was working in cyber. Cyber is taking off. I had the highest civilian clearance that you could get. Uh, But I've always had this like desire to connect great people with great people to do great things. And it might sound a little bit fluffy, but you know, I was a computer science major, then I got into cybersecurity. But really what I loved was helping people kind of connect and technology and, and really, you know, security as a whole were ways to facilitate that, to make that safer. You know, one of my favorite initiatives was uh, enabling uh, Facebook fire in the firewall in Iraq. Uh, one, one of the one of the generals that was there had said, like, you know, he was on his fourth tour, I believe. And he said his one request was he just wanted to have access to Facebook to see pictures of his grandkids, and he would take on the fourth tour. And I remember being like, Wow, my job, you know, as little role as I had was able to enable something like that for someone that was doing something great. And although I loved working in the government and with the military members as a, someone that was not military, I had this like uh, feeling after nine years there that I either lock in and that'll be the, the rest of my career or I get out now and try to reach a, a greater a greater audience. And I left there, went to a data center company to pursue my dream job, which uh, I modeled after Guy Kawasaki um, at Apple, which was the technology evangelist. Really, it was great. I, I reported to the CEO. I had a dotted line to the CIO and to the CMO. And really my job was to truly understand what our customers wanted, how they were using our products and our services, and then come back and work with the right teams. It was I got to initiate a social selling program. I got to deploy an employee advocacy program with both LinkedIn and a couple other uh, solutions. I got to really grow our entire um, internal collaborations. We we went from an internal collaboration tool. We were using Jive, where we were, had 24% usage whenever I started there. Uh, and after two years when I was there, we were well north of 81 
91% of our employees were logging on on a, a daily or weekly basis uh, under that the communication tool. And so the un- unfortunately or fortunately, uh, the data center was purchased, uh, got bought out, and uh, the company that was buying out the uh, data center didn't really understand the role of an v- evangelist, and it looked as though it was a, kind of a, a rogue employee doing fun things that everyone would want to do, but they couldn't figure out how that worked. Uh, so that ended up being my last day, and actually it ended up being my last day of working for anyone else. I That was my kick out the door into entrepreneurship. And even at that point, you know, if I looked at my career, the evangelist job at the data center, I spoke at some of the biggest conferences I've ever spoke at, AWS, Gartner, uh, VMworld, a lot of the, the government events. Um, and it was because it was part of my job. It was the CEO that I worked for was the smartest man I'd ever met in my entire life still to this day, um, but was someone that didn't like the bureaucracy of speaking and being politically correct and not really kind to, uh, to please the audience. So he allowed me to do, take a lot of those roles, a lot of those positions. And then if you look back even in the government role, that was kind of, I became kind of came the person that was the face. And so I I started a marketing agency and quickly realized that my style and my passion isn't for agency style work. And I was kind of in that mode of what do I do now? And back then, uh, I'd say 2015, 2016, uh, about 20% of my revenue was speaking. I was doing a lot more consulting, a lot more influencer work. Uh, I got to work with IBM, Dell, Samsung, SAP, the UFC, the Super Bowl, um, mostly deploying influencer marketing solutions uh, where I just helped them communicate across the board. And during that time, it opened up some opportunities for speaking. And so in 2015, 2016, 20% of my, my revenue was speaking. And last year, uh, 90% of my job was speaking. And so I, I kind of fell in love with the stage, the ability to be able to connect. And a lot of the people I work with, including uh, you guys here, is that I like to do more than just the one hour on stage. I like to say I like to take everything from you know, how, how do we build a strategy? How do we uh, motivate and inspire uh, people not only on stage, but also af- off stage? Then how do I be part of the community to really drive change? I think change has been my underlying like driver of this whole thing. And so that's that's my weird path into it. I, I love it now. There's nothing else in the world I'd rather do. I, I have three daughters um, that live here in Northern Virginia. And the nice thing about it is I'm home uh, just about every weekend. I'm very lucky for whatever reason, I don't speak at a lot of events that are, are weekend type events. And uh, you know when I'm not speaking, I host three podcasts. I do some consulting work uh, with those clients that are hiring me to speak. But it's uh, it's turned into my dream job. My mom always said I came out of the womb talking, which I'm sure those on the podcast have now realized that I do have no problem talking. And I finally found a job that kind of uh, fits that style of I get paid to talk on stages and paid to talk behind microphones and uh, nothing else I'd rather do. Oh, it's fascinating, Brian. And it, and it seems like you know, just based on your tenures, your, your different experiences at, you know, such a diverse range of organizations, different roles, that it seems like just based on the content that we've seen you speak about, you know, whether it's through our events or on social, through your website, there seems to be a connected thread between your professional experiences and the topics you speak of today, largely around the impact of technology. You noted uh, the role of trust and transparency in a digital era. And of course, the role that millennials, you know, younger generations play in the evolution of technology, the evolution of marketing. I'd love to hear straight from you. I mean, how how did such a diverse professional road influence what, what you speak about today? I mean, you know, those key passion points that, that you try to carry out in, in your sessions, in, in all the content that you share. 
So I think it's it's been an interesting path because you know I graduated uh, college in 2003 with a, a business information computer science degree um, without really a love for coding. I had a love for my ability, uh, what I like to say, which I learned now. I, I didn't know this at the time. Um, I that I like to say that I, I was really good at translating the geek speak. And really what that meant was I could work with the the cybersecurity members of my team that were really good at cybersecurity solutions. They were developers, they were programmers. I could work with them, understand their pain points. And then I could also go brief the generals and those that the government, you know, the GS-15, a lot of the leaders that we had, and I could convey the message to them um, in a way that they understood. And then I could take their message of what they wanted and kind of translate it downstream to those that didn't want to deal with management or meetings. And, and I found this fun little space where, um, it, it was kind of the, the cross between understanding the role of technology and loving the role of technology. Like I truly love, you know, I'm the person that on you know free time is jailbreaking my iPhone or listening to a podcast about artificial intelligence and the future of deep learning. Um, I really do enjoy technology while at the same time, um, I'm not one that says that technology is the be all for everything. And I like to say like what I've kind of learned in my career and a lot of it even comes into the cross-generational elements where I talk about millennial generation, you know, that job I had at the government as I was growing the team, every one of the people that worked for me on my team were actually older than I was. And it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot. Even in college, I was on in a fraternity and I played college hockey and I, I ended up being uh, the president of the fraternity my sophomore year of college, which was the first time they had ever voted in someone as a sophomore. And I had to quickly learn how to command authority as a a sophomore president of a fraternity while at the same time gain the respect of the seniors and understand kind of not only the the differences, but how to kind of feel my way around. And I think a lot of that's no different than what I do now. And I think a lot what happened happened was in 2003 till, let's just say till 2013, over those 10 years, the technology's impact on marketing, the internet, the social media started to grow. And I found kind of this, that same ability that I was doing in cybersecurity with this idea of translating the geek speak and, and connecting the dots between technology and the human condition uh, is really what marketing was needing to do. And so I, I kind of fell into marketing without ever considering myself a marketer. Uh, and a lot of times, even the, the social selling initiatives that I deployed at our company uh, we were doing the best numbers we had ever done. And they would often ask like, this is so weird because Brian doesn't think like a marketer or a salesperson. And I like to think that's probably like kind of my sweet spot is that I, I do think of it as kind of this, how do we become more human? How do we build trust? And I do try to break down stereotypes. I'm one that I had no problem being identified as a millennial, uh, but it wasn't until um, 2013, actually it was the end of 2013, I got off stage and a lady, um, she was in tears and she's like, would you mind FaceTiming with my son? He's embarrassed to be labeled a millennial and is ashamed. And she's like, the fact that you brought that up on stage once or twice was something I, I, I thought you, you would be great. And so I ended up FaceTiming her son and it was a very quick conversation, nothing you know, groundbreaking or crazy. But I remember that day I was like, wow, if you know, I didn't get to choose what year I was born. And I, I don't believe my the year I was born had any ill effect on my success in my career. But if it was other people that didn't feel comfortable identifying from that and wanted someone to look up to or someone that was wearing the badge as a thing of pride, I would own it. And it was actually that day that I changed my my Twitter profile and put millennial on the front of my Twitter profile. And so interestingly enough, that it's kind of funny how that journey goes because 
now a lot of things I talk about is what I learned managing, you know, 30 employees that were older than I was. Um, even the change, you know, I, I, I helped the Super Bowl do uh, Super Bowl 50 in San Francisco, do 20 hours of live streaming. They had never done live streaming ever before. And the interesting like thread that goes through all of this is I just love helping people embrace change to do the things that they love doing. And it doesn't matter if it's technology or if it's marketing, if it's sales. Um, I'm definitely a business-focused person. I'm not one that drives change for going viral or being on TV. It's more of the, you know, driving a business solution. But that's been the common thread is I, I love and embrace change. I know that not everyone does. And if I can help people change their mindset, open their perspective to new opportunities, new ways of looking at things, um, I'm all for it. And it happens a lot to do with this, you know, generational divide that we have because uh, we have the traditionalists, the baby boomers, the Gen Xers, those those pesky millennials, which I identify as, and then my kids, which are the Gen Z. And so with the fact that we have six generations in the workplace for the first time in history, that's never been the case. It is something that we have to identify with. And I think it's the to me, it's the quintessential change. It's We have to change our communication habits. We have to change how we look at things. And sometimes we just have to change the questions we're asking because of the internet, because of social media, you know, times have changed. And to me, that's what excites me. I, I absolutely love getting up every single day. I love what I do. Um, I love the challenges. I, I love being, you know, ha- having, I, I had a really interesting question just this week of someone that had, had hired a couple millennial employees and had a very bad experience. And we were walking through that and it was, it was very challenging. And I can tell you, it wasn't, I didn't have a bandaid or a direct answer, but I really, I, I truly relish in this idea that I believe that together, if we're open, we have an open mindset, we can figure out what we have that are different, what we have that are alike, and together we can move the needle forward. And that's kind of where this has all taken me. Yeah, I agree with you there, Brian. It seems like the millennial generation is continuing to have uh, a major impact on the B2B industry in particular, um, not just... Uh, the consumer side of things, as well as uh, traditional tech companies are starting to um, dive into this millennial mindset. You and I have had conversations around the millennial mindset in the past. Um, when it comes to you know those that are listening today, what, are, what does this millennial mindset mean to you specifically from a business standpoint? So, you know, I, and I think I, I love that. And I, and I actually, I, you know, I think with uh, one of the recent reports that you guys put out uh, with the millennial generation, I, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to, it's not just the, those that are under the age of 40, that, that demographic, it's really the digital consumer. And that's why I like calling it the millennial mindset, not just millennials, because when I, I joke about this a lot, but I know a couple um, of gentlemen who are in their seventies that I would identify as having a millennial mindset that they, they think digital first, um, even if they meet somebody offline, they're going to Google their name, they're going to look them up on LinkedIn. They understand the power of being able to tell a story and that they have an outlet that every other generation would have would have killed to have in the past. And it just happens to be that the the internet and social media uh, happened to come to fruition during the millennials kind of rise into the workplace. And so that's why when I look at that millennial mindset, a lot of that to me is understanding you know, how does today's digitally connected buyer, digitally connected employee, digitally connected consumer, what are the things, how do they think of things, right? And, you know, we've always heard the old adages like, you know, it's not B2B or B2C, it's human to human or person to person. Those are all great to remember. 
But it also comes into things where a lot of the data that's coming out, you know, 60, 70%, I can't remember the, the exact number of millennials are identifying as having a significant role in the B2B buying purchase. And it's, it's funny because there is something to be said where I think millennials as a whole aren't afraid to believe that they are probably more impactful than maybe they really are. But at the same time, if, if millennials are believing that they're having an active impact, then it's something that we have to understand. And so I think for businesses, especially if you're looking at it you know, from a key characteristics of like understanding, a lot of it comes down to you must communicate where the buyer wants to communicate, right? I think that's one of the key ones. And funny enough, that's not new, right? Like it's the whole old adage where if someone likes to pick up the phone or someone would rather you take them out to dinner, you know, to to close a sale. You know, I remember my dad telling that all the time. Like some people that he had that were in my dad's line of work, he's like, well, I had had to take them out to dinner because they like to be wined and dine. Other people are like, they want three phone calls in a week to know, to be reminded they were important. And the interesting thing is we just have so many different communication channels today that the desire to be communicated with where we prefer is the same desire that the consumer has always had. We just have more options. And something like you know Facebook Messenger or even a bot on your um, website that can interact and answer the simple questions that a lot of your consumers are going to have is something that is important because you know I, I even identifying myself, I, I'm not one that likes to talk on the phone. Uh, I would much rather prefer to do my interactions via email during you know booking something online uh, or even on an app on my phone. And so, so therefore, I will oftentimes default, you know, in my buying cycle to if someone, even if they're interacting with me, say on social media, but their call to action is for me to set up a phone call, the likelihood of me, you know, purchasing that software or signing up for that demo is actually a lot less than if they simply said, hey, fill out this form or go to this site or, you know, whatever that may be in the digital space. And I think that's that's a very important one uh, today. And and it, it comes down to the concept of, you, you might, as the B2B uh, seller, you might not like the channel. You might not prefer to be on, on, let's say, Twitter or even LinkedIn, you know, in mail. But you have to ask yourself, is it my job to communicate where I prefer as a marketer? Or is it my job to go to where the, the most likelihood of a, of a yes would exist, which is where your buyer actually would like to close a deal? And uh, I was just on a uh, hosting a panel with uh, both Oracle and SAP. Uh, Lisa from Oracle and Amisha from SAP were on my panel, and and both of them were were having the, the conversation that you know the buying cycle in B two B seems to be actually shrinking for them, and with based on the interactions. And funny enough, the reason for that that they believe is that a lot of the questions that usually go unanswered or take months to answer in the B2B buying cycle are now being delivered via an influencer or an employee advocacy program, or even something as simple as a Twitter chat or a video on LinkedIn. Therefore, where previously you would you would wait months, you would test things out, you're getting a lot of these answers being presented to you in the fashion that you desire to consume them. Therefore, the B2B cycle of you know actually pulling the trigger is actually shortening. And I think that's something to, to think about for those that you know are listening is you know how how can we look at this a little bit differently and provide answers to solutions in a digital way that would not only 
uh, increase the likelihood of this millennial mindset consumer to purchase, but also shorten the buying cycle, which I think everyone in the B2B space would would relish at the fact of having a shorter buying cycle. That's great, Brian. Quick follow-up question for you there. You know, especially when we when we think about the value of all these digital channels and touch points, of course, that allows that self-navigation that so many millennial-minded folks um, enjoy, that that's what they're looking for, right? But then when it comes time for the brand, you know, or sales to have that engagement. I mean, I, I, I almost feel like there's there's an issue of, you know, the, these channels becoming, you know, hot or trendy, like LinkedIn InMail, for example, that initially was, you know, an innovative thing and, and only the best of the best were doing it. Now everyone's starting to do it. So it's starting to get very entrenched and, you know, it's almost getting overwhelming for the buyer. So how can B2B organizations strike that balance of being where the buyer is, but doing so in a effective and compelling way so they continue to stand out or, you know, reach them in a, in a new and different way that no other vendors may, may be engaging with them. I love the way you position that. So for me, you know, I think there's there's a big advantage for being the early adopter, the first onto a platform. But I also think there's a big advantage from being a, the second to a platform or, or a little bit later on to understand what works, what doesn't. Uh, LinkedIn is a perfect example. You know, a lot of the B2B brands that I've been working with recently, it's no longer, you know, what we've kind of learned on, on LinkedIn is, yes, there's a lot more interaction, a lot more sales happening on, on LinkedIn, but there's a lot more personalized conversations happening. People aren't just sharing their business life or their resume on LinkedIn. We're seeing a lot more people using video on a regular basis on LinkedIn. And so if you looked at some of those that are successful on LinkedIn and you wanted to play there, kind of learning from the other's mistakes, you can almost leapfrog the learning time if you're a little bit later to adopting some of these platforms. I think I, something that I struggle with when I'm working with clients is that if you're late to the game and you make the same mistakes as the early adopters, you will continue to fail, continue to be behind. But if you're willing to learn, listen, reach out, even understand um, how your competitors have found success there, and then kind of adapting that to yourself, you know, that, I think that can be something. And then I also think it's one of those places too where I like to recommend zigging when everyone's zagging or if everyone's doing this, don't be afraid to go here, right? And so like all of a sudden video has become very sexy on a lot of these platforms, which for me, video is great. And I'm a huge, I think mean, video is, is one of the things that I'm uh, kind of known for. But a lot of times I'll give advice and say, well, maybe a podcast is better because there's less B2B brands that are actually facilitating podcasts. Why you know why play where all the fish are, where all the fish are when you can actually go somewhere else where you can you know be one of the few people in that fish pond or even you know why don't we reexamine what our our blog strategy looks like or how can we connect these dots in, in a way that is a little bit different than others like even even do it going as far as you know if a lot of your competitors are now doing videos on LinkedIn from their employee or their brand accounts you know, how can you do it differently? How can you do customer testimonials using what you've learned, but do it from a, a different viewpoint? Maybe you're doing a customer interviewing another customer, or you're doing a series where you're showing kind of behind the scenes of a customer and kind of taking things a little bit differently. So I think it's one of those catch-22s, right? I think being an early adopter can have an advantage on some of these platforms, especially from the B2B space. While at the same time, you know, I, I work with healthcare and the financial spaces a lot. And a lot of the reason that I think it's great to work with them is I believe they have the greatest 
chance to innovate in the history of time because they get to learn from all of the crap that we've been doing wrong in the digital space for the last seven years where they've been kind of avoiding that space. And now we can say, okay, how do we protect people's data better? How do we avoid being that shady with when we're using someone's data on social media? How can we learn from those mistakes that others have made? And I think that's that's the big piece. I think, I think one of the biggest lessons is listening to those that have been successful and those that have failed where you're trying to play and then trying to stand out by doing something a little bit differently, but also learning from those mistakes. Oh, I love that. I love the idea of zigging while everyone's zagging and also the, the value of simply listening. And I think, you know, it's funny, as a millennial, I, I'm always fascinated and baffled by the assumptions and, and misconceptions of, you know, our our generation or, you know, everyone's trying to kind of lump us into this box of certain behaviors, preferences, expectations, which, I mean, there, there are always going to be patterns. But um, I have to ask, because you work with such a diverse range of organizations across industries, have you ever had a situation where, you know, you're trying to consult a client and they come to the table saying, oh, like we're trying to engage millennials and we think X, Y, Z, and you're just like, oh, no, nah, man, that's, that's, that's not it. And try and get them on the right path. Because I feel like there are, there are so many misconceptions out there about our generation. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think actually persona basing your marketing strategy based on one variable, which happens to be the year someone was born, is almost a guarantee for failure. And you know, as someone that I'm, I was born in 1981. I'm not. I, I, that's why I call myself a pager wearing millennial. You know, I relate to those that were born in 1975 a heck of a lot better than I relate to those that were born in 1990. And even those, the, the, those are the ones that identify as a millennial. And so I think that's, that's kind of the first step when we're, when, and, and I think that's, you know, there's some things when you're like, okay, if I'm niching down and I'm saying, okay, I want to market towards millennial moms that are, that are looking for a second job or that are buying software to support something, or I'm looking to, you know, millennial, uh, single dads, what, you know, what, if you're, if you're niching down at a certain level, you can use a little bit better, but I think looking at it like holistically and believing that an entire generation operates the same way is is guaranteed as to failure. But I also think it's one of those things that you know when I when I do hear that a lot of times the the conversation is I don't understand why they do that or why they are this or they want participation trophies or they are so needy or they want their hands held. And when you're looking at the people that you're trying to sell from a they standpoint, I think you have, you're already, you've already failed. Cause how do you, how can you even believe that you understand them if you're talking to them in that kind of sense, right? So it's like, well, how do we understand our customer? How do we understand what, what they want? And, and part of it honestly comes down to including those that are your, in your target demographic in the conversations. It's amazing to me how few organizations, they'll come to me and say, Brian, we realize that 60% of our, our, our buying this year will happen based on millennials and those under the age of 40. And I'll ask them, well, in your decision-making room, how many people in the room are under the age of 40? And they'll look around and they'll, like, they'll try to figure it out and they're like, um, nobody. <laughs> and you're like, well, there's, there's, this could be the first step. It's one thing to do the research and have the data uh, of, a, of those that you believe you're trying to reach. It's another one to, hey, let's actually include some of them in the conversation. I think that's a great place to start. And then there's another one where I, I hear a lot of brands, actually, I had, I had this this week on Monday. Um, someone was actually telling me it was a, and it was actually a, in a, a B2B play where their job is um, kind of in the in the travel space. They're connecting 
kind of resorts and, and people and resorts and travel groups, but their targets are those that are retired. It's the retired person that wants to travel and climb a mountain or wants to go kayaking on, uh, you know, in Egypt or whatever it may be. And a lot of what they, they listen to my entire keynote and they're like, Brian, but this person isn't on social media. This person, like Brian, nothing you said matters. And, and I like to boil that down to, I think there's something else that we forget is that we don't, we don't have to actually reach the person that is actually going to pull the trigger, put in their credit card and make the purchase. What oftentimes is more powerful is reaching those that influence that person to make the decision buying process. So if you were trying to reach the retired grandpa or grandma that is wanting to go on a vacation and they're looking for traveling to a new location, my guess is that their kids, their grandchildren that, that are connected and understand about a new resort in Bali or this new you know, opportunity that they discovered based on Instagram that's happening in Egypt and it, they, they see something that they could actually you know, talk to their, their grandparents about. Imagine if you're, you were, you're actually reaching the person that is influencing that final purchase, even if they're not the one going on the trip or actually buying the software or whatever it may be. And I think that's usually where when I, when I tell people that and we walk them, I walk them through, okay, well, who's the person that usually influences the person that you're trying to reach? And almost every time they get the aha moment, like, oh, yeah, they are on social media. They do listen to podcasts. And it's, and it's kind of a fun, it's a fun piece for me because it, it's something that we, we often forget because in the, in the offline world or the before social media digital world, connecting with the influencer, that person that influenced the buying decision, that data didn't exist. And really access to that person didn't exist. But now we have the data and we have the access to the person. And now the question becomes, are you willing to tailor your marketing towards the person that influences the decision maker rather than the decision maker that you're not sure is on the channel. And if you are, I can almost guarantee you it would work. That's pretty a unique way of looking at that because when it comes down to it, that specific example about selling to retirees, these types of unique experiences and not necessarily selling directly to them, but indirectly sounds a lot like in like the B2B tech world, what account-based marketing is. Obviously, that's a, a very uh, big buzzword and buzz topic For sure. um, going around the space. And I'm sure that you hear it a lot at all the events that you go to. But when it comes down to it, it's having those types of meaningful conversations that engage with the right people that ultimately put you in, in good light in front of your actual ideal buyers. It just makes a lot of sense there. And there's a lot of topics such as this building that trust, getting this millennial mindset, um, having the right conversations and getting to know your target audience um, that we covered at the B2B sales and marketing exchange this past August in Boston. Um, Brian, you took part in that event and you moderated an entire track and you, you sat in that room all day listening to the unique way that many B2B brands are going to market, engaging with their target audiences, you know, creating unique experiences that ultimately put them above the noise and that sort of thing. I'm curious, based off of what you're seeing around the space and being in that track room the entire day, what stood out the most to you? What in comparison to other stuff that you're seeing on the circuit? 
No, I, I love that because uh, it, it was interesting, you know, as I was going, you know, and we had account-based marketing, artificial intelligence. Uh, I love the way that, that that event was set up where um, we were oftentimes hearing the success story alongside of the brand or the, the software or the solution um, that was being sold. And, uh, you know, if I had to boil it down to what the theme that I, it didn't matter if it was account-based marketing, didn't matter if it was social selling, artificial intelligence, um, even the, the millennial conversations where we were trying to reach a generation the two things that I think stood out the most to me was this idea of understanding the holistic view of your buyer, understanding more than just a one based persona, right? More than just their age, maybe even understanding better what time of the day that they purchase. What are, what are the things that, that matter the most to them outside of, of work? What are things that they care about? You know, how do I connect them with our employees? So I think that that holistic view, uh, and, and it doesn't, and really getting that holistic view can be as simple as you know doubling down on the data you already have. It doesn't have to mean installing a whole entire new solution or a new project. Uh, it can, it can, it can definitely mean that as well. And then I think the other one of it was being willing to listen to what your customers are saying. I think that was a theme that was without question stood out. You know, I think as marketers, especially in the B two B space. We've been screaming for years that we want to know all the things about our customer. We want all of this data. We want to know their buying habits. We want to know their their price points. We want to know uh, you know what's the average length. We want to know all of these things. Well, all of a sudden, we're getting all of this data, and I think even uh, you know a couple of the examples there, they would say something like, "Well, in the first year." We, we saw these results, but we kind of were like, well, that's not what we believe. So we, we just continue doing what we're doing. And then after a year, we decided to embrace the fact that we might not understand this and maybe we should allow the, the context around the data to drive our, our new marketing initiatives. And all of a sudden, the success started to happen, right? And I think it's it sounds simple, but I think in this digital world where we're hyper-connected, we have all this information, we do have AI, we do have a, a, you know ABM, we do have a lot of these uh, initiatives that are being deployed on a regular basis. It does come down to simply understanding the holistic view of your customer, being willing to listen to them, and then last but not least, being willing to tap into them to be also your future sales and marketing. I think that's one that we heard a lot as well is that was, well, now that you're, you've adopted this new mantra, what are the things that are leading to the most success? And they started saying, you know, we started to have to market less and we started to do things like traditional mail, uh, where they were you know, sending custom packages to their current employee or to their current favorite customers and helping them understand the power of sharing something on social media. And rather than trying to market towards this new customer, they just made it simple for their existing customers to brag about how happy they were. And all of a sudden, they became more successful, right? I think those are the themes that jumped out at me. It was really this, this approach. It, it really comes down to almost grassrooting what you're doing and not being afraid to focus on uh, really satisfying and understanding your current customers deeper and then helping, allowing them to help market and sell for you, which I think is, is really exciting for us as we move forward. Yeah, it's definitely exciting. You're seeing a lot more conversations now um, when it comes to customer retention and customer lifecycle marketing, that sort of thing that I think B2B brands are now starting to get to that point where they're comfortable having customers in the room, having these, you know, sort of pseudo intimate conversations and learning more about their needs, their pain points, and then being able to better position them to have these types of conversations with new prospects and, you know, hear from the people that are actually using their products, using their services, that sort of thing. It's uh, it's a really unique time to be in the industry. Well, Brian, we're actually going to move into a quick speed round. We have a handful of questions here, some on 
topic, some not so on topic, and we want to get your input on it. So if you can give us like a quick 30 second response uh, to this, that'd be great. So first one, would you rather have more time or more money? And what would you do with your choice? Oh, more time, hands down, no questions about it. And it'd be more time spending time with my daughters and doing the things that I love with them, which is um, you know kind of the beauty of what I do. I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. But uh, the, having more time, because interestingly enough, I don't want to do... I don't want to do less of what I'm doing for my career and my business, but I would love to have that additional time to spend more time with them because it is my my number one driving force, that's for sure. Love it. And time is precious, right? It is. All right. Next, next question. If you could only eat one fast food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Or just any food? Oh, well, Chipotle was what jumped to mind immediately. I am a Chipotle fanboy. I did South Beach Diet with them uh, about five years ago, and I started eating them four or five days a week without the without the wrap and without the rice, and I lost a bunch of weight, and I kind of fell in love with uh, their solutions, and you can make it in a bunch of different ways. So I think Chipotle would be my answer. I just got a heartburn <laughs> thinking about that. <laughs> I just got inspiration. <laughs> well, now you got inspiration. I got the heartburn. I just got what I'm eating for dinner. There you go. <laughs> So the next next question, Brian, is what song best describes your life and why? Ooh. Well, the song I like to come out to on stage is Hey Ya by Outkast. It's a little bit of like doing it my way, but also enjoying the ride, uh, living your best life, but also not being afraid to kind of uh, realize that you're doing things a little bit differently and uh, you'll make mistakes. So Hey Ya for Outkast would be definitely the song I think that probably describes me the best. And that's an early 2000s anthem. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is. It is. It, it definitely dates me as a millennial, that's for sure. Ditto to that. All right. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> um, all right. Next question. If your hometown were to build a statue in your honor, what would you be holding? Ooh. I, I almost definitely be holding a, a, an iPhone, an iPhone in one hand, and and probably a hat in the other hand. Uh, as much as I'm used to, I'm the one that's always been told that I wear the hat on my head. A lot of people joke that when they hang around with me, they're amazed how many times I adjust my hat and take it on and off my head as a as a just a nervous habit that I don't realize I do. So I would I'd have a I'd have an iPhone in one hand and a hat in the other hand. Hey, it's a lot better than you know a lot of other nervous ticks or anything <laughs> like that. Like, <laughs> that's true. Very true. Um, so the next and and, and last. Last question that we have for you is Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook? What's, what is your favorite? Or TikTok. Or TikTok. Oh, t- I'm currently addicted. Which to, I still don't understand. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm addicted to consuming TikTok. And I'm actually learning a lot from TikTok at the moment on how to create engaging content um, and how to do a lot of different things. But my, my first love and my main love is Twitter. I, Twitter I, I call Twitter the unfiltered fire hose of real-time conversations. And it doesn't matter if you want to find someone that, you know, is that something that you like, you don't have to follow them. You don't have to know who they are. You don't have to be introduced with them. You don't have to be connected with them. You don't have to ask them to a, for a follow. You can jump into a conversation. And so Twitter is always the unfiltered conversation element of Twitter to me would be the, if I had, it was only had one platform to use forever, it would definitely be Twitter. I feel like it it allows the world to be such an open landscape and it, it, it plays for good things and for bad things as we're currently seeing in our current landscape. But, uh, I think it's it's definitely the platform for me. I'm I I love being social on social media and Twitter. I think uh, those conversations that I'm able to engage with people that maybe I would have never crossed paths with, 
are always facilitated on Twitter. Yeah. And they actually just made a, a big position as far as the the role or lack thereof of political ads through the platforms. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes things up. It has. And, and Twitter's made a heck of a comeback. I tell you what, if you haven't, if someone, if you haven't been active on Twitter in the last couple of years, cause it would burn out, it was too noisy. I, I definitely recommend checking it out again. I think the, the, this last, I'd say the last 14 to 16 months for me, the amount of engaging conversations, like I was actually having a conversation uh, yesterday uh, via Twitter with two people that are part of the board of the United Nations. And it was just happened to be, I replied to a tweet that we both replied to, and we started a very in-depth conversation. And, and more than likely, I will be having dinner with them over the next couple of weeks. And I, I was thinking about it when I was on the airplane. I was like, how amazing is that, that, you know, I'm, I'm connecting with someone and we had a very intelligent, although disagreed on our, our stances, uh, it, it was facilitated on Twitter, which is kind of beautiful. That's awesome. Great, Brian. Well, we, we hit on a lot. It's we, We've almost been talking for an hour, which is incredible to me because I feel like it's been five minutes and I feel like we could just <laughs> keep talking all day. Um, you, you, your experience is fascinating. Your perspectives are fascinating. Um, but to close things up, another pseudo you know, lightning question for you is why don't we close off the conversation with you giving a quick uh, elevator pitch of your session at the 2020 B2B Marketing Exchange in Scottsdale, what folks can expect and why they should attend. So I think, you know, a lot of what we talked about here, this idea of kind of cross-generational communication and how do we balance this driving innovation and technology that is currently, you know, the, for me, technology is not going to slow down. Innovation is not going to all of a sudden stop. We will not be able to pause things that we can be more human or that we can reset the trust metric that we currently have with our customers. So what I'm really going to try to talk about is this idea of, you know, not only how do we be more empathetic as marketers so that we can see the holistically, you know, what is the differences between those we work with, those that we're trying to connect with, but also how do we, how do we kind of integrate technology so that it allows us to do the things that we know we have to do, but it saves us time so we can spend more time doing the things that I talked about earlier, the personalization, the connecting with someone, you know, writing a personalized uh, LinkedIn in-mail rather than blanket automation that, we, that we've been kind of using to quote unquote uh, say that we're doing social media. And so that's really what I'm going to focus on, you know, giving actionable ways for us to implement that in our, not only in the B2B lifecycle as the marketer to customer relationship, but also in in your, you know, within your teams, how do we, you know, I, I, I look at this and say that, you know, if, if we've always been told everyone in a company sells and everyone in your company markets for your company, we just have to start looking at where does technology play a role so that we can make that easier for everyone in our company to do those things so that together we all move to achieve those business objectives that we have. So I'm, I'm excited. I, I love this conversation. I love pushing the needle. Um, I also can tell you, I have some, uh, some fun research that is in the works as well uh, around that as I, I have a book that'll be coming out in that same time frame as the event. So the, and the, the book, the idea of the book is uh, press the damn button. And the whole premise there is that empathy starts with me and that together, you know, we can change the world, but we first have to be more, uh, allow people to be more empathetic towards us. And I think that is, that is extremely important uh, in marketing and sales as well as I know I, I will, I'll kind of leave the, the summary of this because I don't want to give away everything that you guys are going to show up for. But uh, the, the big piece of it is that we've always been told People buy from people they like. That's no, that, that, that hasn't changed. But I believe in 2019, 2020, and beyond, people buy from people they can relate to. And the question becomes, in the B2B customer journey, in the B2B sales cycle today, how are you being relatable, especially in the digital space, with your customers? 
And then how can you scale that? And that's what I'm hopefully going to help you solve uh, in my session. Yep, and some good final thoughts there to for our listeners to uh, take a step back and uh, think about. So Brian, it's always great chatting with you. We look forward to uh, your session at the 2020 B2B Marketing Exchange in Scottsdale. And as always, thanks for your time. Yep. Thanks, Brian. My pleasure, you guys. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of the B2B Marketing Exchange podcast. To receive future episodes, be sure to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you're hungry for more B2B best practices, join us at the 2020 B2B Marketing Exchange coming to Scottsdale, Arizona from February 24th to 26th. You'll have access to more than 100 sessions focused on content marketing, demand gen, ABM, and so much more. Save 25% on your pass by using discount code B2BPOD. That's B2BPOD. We hope to see you there.